This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. And I'm Ryan Warner. There are a lot of limitations on where you can consume marijuana in Colorado. You can't do it in public. Hotels are often off limits, as are some rental properties. So you'd think people would be racing to open pot lounges, which Denver voters made legal in 2016. But so far, just one business has gotten what's called a designated consumption area license, the coffee joint in the La Alma Lincoln Park neighborhood. I have to say, this is not where I'd expect a coffee shop to be. We are literally right next to I-25 through central Denver. It's a pretty industrial area, not walkable, railroad tracks not too far away, and gosh, no trees or any real sense of neighborhood. We'll have to figure out why this is the location they chose when we go in. Well, welcome to the coffee joint. We're the first licensed social consumption cannabis club. Inside of here, you guys are allowed to consume THC edibles. You can also vape flour, wax, and oil. If you have a vape pen, you can bring that in or you can pick one up here. And lastly, you're allowed to dab concentrates in here. But I can't smoke. No smoking is allowed due to the Colorado Clean Air Act, so we don't allow any open flame or any torches inside. Just like a restaurant can't allow you to smoke anywhere in Colorado. Correct. After scanning my driver's license, Lainey Nickerson hands me a waiver. I don't sign it since I won't be getting high, but customers essentially agree they're responsible for their own behavior. Then we take a look around. I'm seeing all kinds of snacks for sale, but these are not marijuana snacks. Everything in the coffee joint is uninfused. There is no THC in any of our products in the coffee joint. Why is that? That is against our license, so we do not have any THC for sale in here, only at the dispensary. Um, This is just a social consumption venue. Point is that you bring your own marijuana, and you actually can get it next door because the business owns the dispensary next door. Correct. Beyond the front retail space is a big room with foosball and ping pong. They also do ganja yoga here. And there's a conference room for dabbing, that is, heating and inhaling sticky THC oil. Three young men sit around a table watching TV and getting high. Alfredo, what brought you here today? Um, Just a nice atmosphere, you know. It was really relaxed and, you know, it was pretty nice to have a place to consume conveniently. That's not your home, for instance, I guess. Yeah, of course. Now, why why not consume at home? That's where most people have to consume marijuana in Colorado because there aren't a ton of these places around. Well, it was more out of curiosity that I came here because, yeah, you do bring up a very good point. It's just an atmosphere around here and meeting a lot of new people is really fun. Were you expecting more people? I mean, I usually expect it to be probably sometimes mellow. And it gets busier on the weekends, though, for sure. (coughs) Oh, yeah, it's packed in here on on the weekends. Well, the weekend of 420, there was about 50 people in here just hanging out. They're from different states, from different countries. It was pretty dope. Then a couple from out of town walks in. Well, we actually uh, have recently relocated to Southern California. We're in the cultivation business. Thought it would be interesting to come out and check out one of the first legal consumable lounges in in the country. Is it something you hope to emulate in California? Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. We're, We're actually looking at the process of opening a few lounges in Southern California as we speak. Indeed, some California cities have legalized pot lounges. In San Francisco, they can actually sell THC products too, unlike here. And Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper recently vetoed a bill that would have allowed tasting rooms in existing dispensaries. He had safety concerns, saying it could mean more intoxicated driving. 
One other Denver business was close to getting a social consumption license, but it was denied for being too close to a daycare center. Advocates for public consumption say there are just too many rules to make the business model work. Rita Saluk is a co-owner of the coffee joint. She says she's yet to break even. Rita, why did you decide to get into this business? And something that really is brand new, the idea of consumption on site. Well, we was following the idea of social consumption for a long time, about three years since they started talking about it. And we have a dispensary next door. This uh, space became available. At the same time, uh, social consumption opened the door at Denver, and we thought it's perfect fit. And you're the first social consumption license. Yes, correctly. We didn't know we were going to be the first one, but it happens that we're first and only one right now. How was the process of getting that license? It was actually fairly easy compared to other regulated processes. It was one of the easiest ones, and the city of Denver really helped us. They went out of the way to help us out. And yet, if it's so easy to open a lounge like this, uh, why are you the only one? I believe that people just can't find the profitable model, and there's still a lot of regulations, and they have to spend some money. We want to make sure we have enough of staff to assist uh, patrons here, and, you know, it costs. What are some of the rules that you have to follow? I know that you can't have people smoking on site. Well, we cannot have any visitors that younger than 21 years old. We cannot be visible from the public. That's why we, you see those uh, separators by the windows. There are soji screens in the window, and that means that people can't look in and see what's happening. Right. We cannot be close to schools. We cannot be close to par- some parks and recreation centers. But this area was al- already a very industrial area. We already, a thousand feet from school, we already measured that for dispensary. So it was easy That is, clearing the locational hurdles for the dispensary meant you'd already cleared many of them for the lounge. Now, the city does require that you have a training manual for employees. Tell me some of the things that are in that and how you've trained your employees. Since we're so new and nobody else ever done it before, we created that training manual, kind of copying it from the liquor business, changed it to marijuana and make it appropriate where we could, And we're planning to modify it as we understand it better and moving forward. So what kinds of rules carry over from the liquor business? Make sure that you establish connection with your customer. Make sure you understand your customer. And also, if you think that they're breaking any rules, you have to let them know. You have to call police. You have to do something about it. Who are your customers? What do you notice about where they come from, who they are? There's a, a lot of tourists, and some of the tourists, they come in with their bags from a DIA, staying here, consuming, and going back to DIA because they had layover in Denver. Have you ever had problems with customers or had to call the police? We never had to call police from this establishment. Next door, we had one case when person was trying to purchase over the legal limits and was insisting on that. And then over here, we had a couple people that didn't feel good. And uh, we're still not sure what happened to them if it was just tourists. They couldn't adjust to Denver's altitude. But we just had to give them water and we had to... Uh, just make them comfortable. And for one of them, we called ambulance, but I think they both of them just fine. Then we uh, decide to put a sign that if you don't feel well and you feel like you overconsume, please let us know and we'll help you out. And we can help them out, situate them here, give them water, make them feel better, and maybe call Uber for them or get them a ride with their friends. 
I'm glad you mentioned that because I thought about the fact that a lot of the people who consume here might then get in a car and be driving high. Talk about that. Well, a uh, railroad station is 10 minutes away walking, and we, we had some walking traffic here. And uh, we also had people that coming in the Uber, especially tourists. And a lot of times we have a group of people where one person doesn't con- not consume, and they're the ones who designate a driver. So, where is your accent from? My accent from Kiev, Ukraine. It's a Russian accent. And tell me how you got to Colorado and got into this business. Well, I got to co- into Colorado 28 years ago. And I m- wasn't in the drug industry. I was civil engineer, computer programmer, real estate broker. And then as one of my ventures, my clients offered me to become a part of the business. And that's how it started about four years ago. And it took me a while to adjust and to become big proponent versus being an opponent for so many years. You were a marijuana opponent in Ukraine? Oh, in Ukraine, it's any kind of drugs completely prohibited and out of the questions. Marijuana is one of them. You've had to blaze the trail of, of this business. Yes, we are the first ones, and a lot of things we're just trying on and see how it fits. CPR's Ryan Warner speaking with Rita Saluk, owner of The Coffee Joint in Denver. As we heard, there are a lot of restrictions on where a pot lounge can be. Still, by the city's estimate, as many as 9,000 businesses could qualify for a license, but just three have applied. So Denver's put together a committee to look at why so few have expressed interest. We should note that there are private lounges that don't need a license. Ryan's story caps a week-long series about how cannabis has changed Colorado five years after legalization. Hear the rest at CPR.org. In the late 1870s, a freed slave named Julia Greeley moved to Denver. She worked for the rich and powerful, but it's her service to the poor that made her a legend. Now there's a move to make Greeley a saint. I'm joined by Mary Leistring, director of the Office of Black Catholics for the Denver Archdiocese. Mary, welcome. Thank you. We'll learn a little more about Julia Greeley's life in a moment, but let's set the scene here. By day, she worked in a mansion for the family of Colorado's first territorial governor, William Gilpin. At night, though, she carried out her charity work in a much different place. What did she do? Um, She had a little red wagon. And she would pull the red wagon, and she would fill it with coal, clothing, medicine, whatever she could find that she knew someone needed. But she did this under the cover of night. Why? Because she didn't want to embarrass anyone. Oh. And she didn't want people to think a poor black woman was giving something to the white community. Now, the neighborhood that, that she was in is, is now Five Points, right? That's correct. That's correct. She lived uh, Walnut on Walnut Street, okay. but it would be considered the Five Points area. So how did she know who needed help? Well, I think, you know, that you know, how word spreads. Uh, she went to uh, Sacred Heart Church, so she may have heard things there. And she did walk the streets of Denver pulling that wagon. So she may have heard uh, things from people there as well. And and how did she get the things that she gave to people? Well, she would she would beg for them. She would ask the white people, you uh-huh. know. Uh, there's a story that she would get um, evening gowns from the whites to give to poor people so they would be able to go to the prom. Oh, really? And was this time 
that she was was living in did was there any restrictions on what she could do in terms of giving this to people? Was she just relegated to one neighborhood or was it all across the city? No, I think she walked the streets of Denver mm-hmm. and she was in the alleys. I think whoever needed it, she did it under the cover of night because yeah. she didn't want to embarrass people. But um, I think it was probably restricted to her area, but mm-hmm. she went all over. She would take uh, pamphlets, Sacred Heart pamphlets, to the firehouses uh, every first Friday. And uh, because she wanted the firemen to be in a righteous state, you know, with God. And she wasn't financially well off, was she? No, she wasn't. She probably made 10 to $12 uh, a week uh, working, and she mainly worked as a domestic. So she didn't make a lot of money, but she always gave from what she had. And that uh, devotion to the Sacred Heart Church was really strong with her, it sounds like. It was. She became a Catholic because uh, Mrs. Uh, Gilpin was Catholic. And she was a daily communicant, which meant she went to church every day. Mm. And she had a certain place that she sat Mm. in front of the Sacred Heart. And what's interesting is that she died. She was on her way to church, and she died on the Feast of the Sacred Heart. Oh, and um, about five hours, people passed by her um, coffin as she laid in state. Because she was so well-known. She was so well-known, and she was the angel of charity. Now, was she just known in one community or, or across the across? No, the I think she was, she was known because she worked in different places. Yeah. Um, I think most of the information is from uh, her working with the Gilpins. Right. But she worked... Um, close to um, the church on Federal, St. Catherine of Siena. Mm. So she was she was well-known, but people knew her because she always gave. She was an ordinary lady that became extraordinary. With her little red wagon. With her little red wagon. Now, she grew up in Missouri where her and her mother were slaves. How did that influence the charity work that she did later? Well, I think... Uh, we could say that Julia really believed in the gospel. Uh, she was she lost an eye by a whip uh, from a slave master that was beating her mom at the time. Uh, but we never heard her say anything negative about anyone. Uh, she never complained. She had arthritis throughout her body, yet she walked everywhere that she she went. She couldn't read. She couldn't write. But she gave herself to people. I want to talk a bit more about the Denver firefighters because that's an interesting point that she would just stand outside handing out these pamphlets to the firefighters who may be on their way to fires, I would think. That's correct. Uh, She did this on the first Friday of every month. And she had a Sacred Heart pamphlet that she would take. And she would give it to Catholics and non-Catholics because she just said that she wanted them to be righteous because they had a dangerous job. And you mentioned during the funeral that thousands attended, hundreds attended. How in that era did an African-American woman, a former slave, draw so much attention? I think because people knew that she gave from her heart. Uh, People uh, streamed by her casket for five hours, Mm. and they were black and they were white, I think because everybody knew that she was the angel of charity, and she gave. Um, you could think of the uh, scripture passage of the the uh, widow given everything that she had, and that's the way Julia was. She gave 
everything that she could to other people. She gave even her plot away. Uh, she her heard, plot? Mm-hmm, she heard that there was an African man that was going to be built, uh, buried in a uh, pauper's grave. So she gave him her grave because she didn't want that. So she was always giving. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're speaking with Mary Leisring. She's director of the Office of Black Catholics for the Denver Archdiocese. And we're hearing the story of Julia Greeley, who Mary's advocating for sainthood. Julia was buried at Mount Olivet Cemetery in Denver. And now that there's a move to make her a saint, one of the first steps was to exhume her remains. That is to take them out of the grave for examination. And last week, on the 100th anniversary of her death, the remains were interred at the Basilica of the Immaculate Conception in Denver. I gather this would be an extraordinary honor for, for anyone, I'm assuming. Yes, and there's no one else buried uh, or in, interred, I guess I should say, at the cathedral. There's no priest, there's no bishop, there's no cardinal. She is the first person. And to have a layperson a freed slave, a black woman. That's historic. And you've worked on this effort for such a long time. What was that service like for you to witness? Well, we started in 2011 with the Guild. And at that time, we weren't thinking about uh, the process of canonization. We mainly were thinking about letting people know who she was. And the Guild is the Julia Greeley Guild, which you're a part of. That's correct. And uh, so we have books that Father Blaine Berkey wrote Uh, so people can purchase the book. But the main purpose was just to make people aware of who she was. And um, in 2016, uh, Archbishop Aquila uh, took the process or took the cause to the USCCB, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, to ask them if it would be okay to go ahead and start the process. And they gave it to him unanimously. So he did. And I'm, I'm I'm sure there are other prominent Coloradans in, in history who've done very charitable things. Why do you think she stands out so much? I think because she did she gave from her heart. Uh, she didn't have a lot, mm-hmm. but she gave what she could. And that's because she was called the angel of charity. She was the, um, here's a lady that uh, has lost an eye, has arthritis throughout her body, pulls a little red wagon uh, to go to the firehouses to give to people. um, And no one else was doing this at the time. I understand to name her a saint, the Catholic Church would have to declare that she had performed a miracle of some kind. Did did Julia Greeley do that? Um, At the present time, we are investigating. Uh, Right now, she's known as the servant of God. Uh, The next step would be uh, venerable. Uh, and then she would have one miracle to be blessed, and she'd have to have two miracles to be a saint. And so what what are the chances for, for that happening, do you think? Well, we're all praying. We're all praying for this. Um, you know, for some people, it takes a very long time. Uh, but but we're praying that this will this will happen. So this could take years. It could take years. But we're praying that it won't take for, years. for a little quicker decision. Right, right. <laughs> now I, I know you said that people uh, uh, felt that she had this this giant heart and she was giving. What about you personally? That why have you taken on this so so strongly? Well, for me, um, I here's an an ordinary person that's become extraordinary. Here's a person that has given 
from, you know, from from what she had. And I think for myself, it it makes me feel like that um, people that are ordinary can become extraordinary. Uh, it makes me feel like that there's a lady that lost an eye uh, from a slave master's whip, but she never said anything negative about anyone. And those are great virtues. And uh, I try each day um, to ex- to exhibit those virtues. You know, I ask myself if I get upset with someone, I say, well, what would Julia do? You know, and that brings me back to be grounded where I can say, no, I'm not going to lash out because Julia never lashed out. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Mary Leisring is director of the Office of Black Catholics for the Denver Archdiocese and president of the Julia Greeley Guild. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The tastes and smells of Puerto Rico were all around Denver's Civic Center Park this past weekend. People danced to live music and enjoyed traditional dishes during the annual Taste of Puerto Rico. Tucked among the festival tents and food trucks was Dos Abuelas, owned by Chef Kay Crespo. She's the daughter of Puerto Rican immigrants. The truck is named after her two grandmothers, who she says taught her how to cook traditional cuisine. The Triple Rican is traditional in Puerto Rico, so any street food you would go to in any part of the island, it's like a Cuban. That's traditional as well as grandma's plate. It's like rice and beans. And the mofongo, of course, which is another traditional which you have over here on the side. Mashed plantains and mayo quechua, of course. Crespo says she wants her food to tell the story of Puerto Rico, where she still has family. It's been nine months since Hurricane Maria left the island devastated. And Crespo says some of her family is still without power as another hurricane season begins. I was just there recently, actually, in April. And a lot of people came to the food truck and donated clothes, batteries, flashlights. So I personally took it myself last, uh, in April. And it was really shocking to see how they're still struggling. You know, I was driving in the highway and there was just no light, so I had to put on my high beams so I could see in the highway so you know where you're going. <laughs> um, to see that there's still a lack of water, it was just really devastating to just see the browns and the greens of the island. But okay, now what? You know, so what are we doing? And that is just, it hurts. You know, we, I, I feel like we're just once again abandoned. When Hurricane Maria was raging back in September, we spoke with Vasti Rosado of Denver. She was born and raised in Puerto Rico, and her grandmother was still on the island. She lost touch with her grandmother for days as the hurricane bore down. Eventually, the pair were united on the mainland, and Rosado's grandmother told her about the absolute destruction. Dead and rotting animals, morgues filling up with the deceased. Rosado's cousin was volunteering at a hospital and told her through text that many people were dying, quote, so many people dead that the media hasn't covered. Well, a recent study from Harvard confirms this. It found possibly more than 5,000 people died for reasons related to Hurricane Maria. This undermines the official death toll of 64 people. Puerto Rico is facing lawsuits demanding more data on that death toll, but won't change their official count until a current study is complete. 
Well, Rosado has decided to move back to Puerto Rico permanently to help rebuild, saying her family and her people need her. She landed on the island this week and joins us from Toa Alta. Welcome back to the program. Hi, Nathan. How are you? I'm just fine. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. So tell us what you've seen in your first few days back. Oh, it's been interesting. You can see, um, you can still see the devastation Maria left behind. Um, light bulbs are still down. Roads are still dirty. Oh, cables are everywhere. Most of the lights intersections don't work. So you just have to like slowly scoot your way through intersections, you know, five, four-way intersections. Um, it seems that we've definitely been abandoned. Hmm. Now, you had expected to see some of that damage, but did anything surprise you when you actually landed there? Um, it's, you know, it's always shocking to, like, look outside the plane as you're landing and you can still see hundreds of blue tarps just in the area close to the airport um, functioning as roofs. Hmm. And, you know, I came in November and to still see houses that I do clearly remember that had tarps then, to still have tarps is just kind of like... It just proves that we've just been, you know, set aside from the government. When you spoke with us in September, you told us that your family was seeing a lot more death than what the media was reporting. Now, this study has come out saying possibly more than 5,000 people died. What are your thoughts on that? Um, when the study came out, I really wasn't shocked. I was just like, well, finally we have something to prove what we Puerto Ricans have known for a while. Um, and there's still rumors that the, even the Harvard study is not correct, that there's probably more deaths. You know, um, my grandma was just telling me when I got here that there's still, um, um, containers, shipping containers that are still functioning as like morgues outside hospitals, but bodies still unclaimed. Hmm. So I wouldn't be surprised if once we do another study or go more in depth, that death toll will keep rising. And, and how has living in those conditions and, and seeing those things affected your grandmother and your cousin? Um, there's definitely a very severe level of PTSD that is not addressed. Um, people are trying to go back um, or regain a sense of normality, but it's not there. Um, my grandma, um, she's been flying back and forth a lot to the mainland because her health, she needs to go to doctors over there. I actually just had a, an uncle died um, last week because there was there weren't enough doctors in Puerto Rico to see him in time. Um, so we we are still having deaths related to the hurricane happening. What do they think about you moving back, especially what they've seen, what's still happening there, especially with hurricane season on the horizon? Um, my family's really proud. Um, they're actually really happy that I've moved back. They they see the value of coming home and, you know, trying to raise awareness and solidarity. And so they see it as, you know, it's hard, but I'm a person that likes challenges. So they're, they're 100% supportive with that. Yeah, and you're going to get in some challenges really soon. I, I, I hear this weekend you're headed into the mountains of the country to start yeah. some work. What are you going to be doing there? Um, I'm going to be volunteering with Finca Remedio. They are building earth domes in Puerto Rico. And, um, houses are sustainable, and the way their their structure, they actually are um, stronger um, to face uh, heavy winds. So I will be going up there for the weekend to learn about this project, to get involved, to learn techniques, and hopefully 
um, start being able to bring more people from abroad who want to show solidarity. Now, do you think just what you've seen that more people could flood into this country to help? Would that overrun the system, maybe? Um, I think if we do it in a systematic way, it would be okay. But yes, if it would overflow our resources. So we have to be very conscious of who we bring in, people who are coming in with the understanding that this is not a comfortable place to go to and that they bring the supplies that they need as well, not just come empty-handed expecting things to be handed to them. Oh, and I think with that said, I mean, do you have a plan for what you're going to be doing, say, next year or even five years from now since you're moving back there permanently? Um, it's kind of an outline. Um, it's not really a plan because, you know, twists and turns come. Sure. So we do have an outline. Um, we want to, the goal is to form a solidarity hostel in which we can bring in people from the international community that can come, visit, learn, and then take it back out to um, the different communities in the world who are interested in learning about Puerto Rico. Um, and did you, I'm sorry, did you say a hostel? So like a, a hotel of some sort where people would come and stay and learn with you? Is that what you said? Yes, something like that. That's kind of like a project that we have in the pipelines that I've been working on for the past few months with a really dear friend who's been all over the world and has done humanitarian and rebuilding work, and she's coming down to help me with this project. Um, because uh, we see that what Puerto Rico lacks um, is global awareness. We don't have that solidarity that other countries have or that other states have. So we need how the question then becomes, how do we raise global awareness so that we can have solidarity, so that if the government doesn't provide, we have people outside of the government that can provide and assist. What will you do if another hurricane sets sights on Puerto Rico? <sighs> well, um, we come with supplies in case another hurricane comes. <clears throat> and if it comes, you know, I'm going to stay. Somebody... Some people have to put the boots on the ground, and I just feel that I'm the person that I have the resilience and the strength to do that. So if another hurricane stays, you know, another challenge to face straight on full order keep on trucking. Thanks so much for joining us, and, and, and please stay safe. Oh, we will. <laughs> Thank you. Vasta Rosado moved back to Puerto Rico from Denver this week to help rebuild the island after the devastation of Hurricane Maria. She spoke with us from Tao Alta. When you think of the War of 1812, what comes to mind? Yes, the British burned the White House, and it's been said that Dolly Madison saved a priceless painting of George Washington as the White House burned. You might also remember that the Star-Spangled Banner was written during the war, but that's probably about it. Well, Denver author Nick Arvin used that same part of history as the setting for his newest novel, Mad Boy. He weaves the complex history into a strange tale, an American tale. Just a few pages into the book, A Cow falls through a roof, killing the mother of 10-year-old Henry Phipps, and launches him on an apparently insane quest. Nick, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Nathan. A cow through a roof. <laughs> <laughs> tell, us, tell us about this, this mission that Henry goes on and, and how he decides to accomplish it, and, and what the heck is this cow falling through the roof? <laughs> Henry, um, his father is in debtor's prison in Baltimore. And... Uh, this cow this cow's been uh, loosed by the British who are marching on Washington 
Um, and their their house is built into the side of a hill, and the cow strays up onto the roof and um, falls through and kills his mother, which leaves Henry all by himself. And um, Henry Henry's in a, a state of shock, and his mother's dead, but he can still hear her voice. Um, and she reminds him that she wants to be buried at sea with her family around her. And um, so Henry goes out to to try and fulfill this this last wish of hers. Um, he he encounters a prostitute who tells him that um, a war is like a rich man dancing with a hole in his pocket. And so he decides he better find the war and then he can get some money together to buy his father out of debtor's prison. And this is a 10-year-old boy. Right. <laughs> now, why why the War of 1812? Why this point in American history? Did, did you choose to set your scenes? I, I became interested in this a long time ago, uh, back in the year 2003, when we invaded Iraq. And um, when we got into Baghdad, uh, there, was, there was a very poor security situation. There was a lot of looting. And there was some commentary at the time to the effect of, you know, how can the Iraqis do this to their own city? Um, and I felt like, you know, people who are in, in desperate circumstances, um, this is kind of human nature. And uh, it seemed like an absurd complaint. And I thought, you know, I bet Americans did the same thing during the War of 1812 when the British um, invaded and burned Washington. And so I did a little research, and sure enough, the same thing happened back then. And uh, so I wrote a, a short story at the time about a boy who was running around uh, Washington looting. And um, like I said, this was a long time ago. Um, I, I wrote that story. I, I remember I sent it to my agent, and my a- agent's comment was, this feels like a chapter from a novel. And I thought, oh, it's a short story. Heck with that. And I went on and wrote other things. Yeah. Um, and then... Uh, about 10 years later, I was working on, um, I'd spent about a year trying to write a sort of sci-fi novel that, um, in hindsight was overly intellectualized and just felt cold and I wasn't having fun with it. And my son and I started going through, uh, Treasure Island and I thought, that's what I want to do. Like a boy running around with buried treasure and muskets and cannons. And I thought of that story set during the war of 1812. And so I went back to that and started trying to figure out who this boy was and, how he had, how he'd ended up in Washington by himself, and what happened afterwards. I, I just want to remind folks that, that during the War of eighteen twelve, the U.S. went to war with Great Britain over trade restrictions, among other things, including an American effort to take over territory in Canada, which was then a British colony. Uh, you write about the war. You write write about the war zone that this boy is hauling his mother's body through a war zone. I mean, did you worry that this task, this journey was more than a 10-year-old could handle? Well, Henry, um, I came to love Henry, the character, very, very quickly. And he's, he, I love him because he's, he's resourceful. Um, he's, he's very visceral, responds to things. And, um, and he's very determined. And I also, you know, I, I did some research and the, you know, the, the whole attitude towards childhood at that time was very different than it is now. Um, uh, a child, you know, as young as seven could be prosecuted as an adult under the law. Um, basically, if you understood the difference between right and wrong, then you could be prosecuted as an adult. Um, and, you know, I encountered stories, uh, for example, of a, a boy as young as 10 who left home and went off to... Um, uh, he worked as a cook in the army and ran messages for them. Um, 
and it was it was pretty common for you know uh, younger children. You know, ben, Benjamin Franklin fr- uh, famously went off at seventeen, but there were there were much younger children off um, making their way in the world. Yeah, is there any of your son in there? You think when you're writing? a little bit, a little, bit. a little bit, yes. Yeah. There are other things from this era that I didn't remember from history class, like the northern states considering seceding from the Union. What was the reason before that? This was much, much before the Civil War. Yes. Yeah, that was one of the fascinating things to me about the War of 1812 that I, I had forgotten until I started researching this as yeah. well. The The northern states um, felt like they'd been dragged into the war by the southern states. Um, and uh, the war... The president at the time was uh, Madison. He was um, uh, from the Republican Party, which is a different Republican Party than the Republican Party we have now. Right. But it was it was at that time anchored in the South, um, and they um, kicked off the war by invading Canada. Um, and the Republicans uh, believed that we would be greeted as liberators. Um, it uh, turned out that we were not, and the war went very badly from there. Um, and the Northern states. Um, like I said, kind of felt like they'd been dragged into this. They had a lot of trade with Canada and also with Britain. Um, so they they were in a bad position. And then um, they the, uh, the war effort itself was driving the entire federal government into enormous debt. Um, and there didn't seem to be any uh, good outcome coming out of it anytime soon. Well, and part of the British strategy, if, if I remember, was to promise slaves their freedom if they joined the British troops. And of course, not all Southerners supported slavery, including Henry's father. But that wasn't as, as straightforward um, as it sounds. And there's a passage in your book that describes this. Um, do, you, do you mind reading that for us? Sure. Father never talked about freeing the slaves with anyone who was likely to disagree. And Father, who liked to go and converse with the slaves for a few minutes and afterward proclaim their marvelous intelligence. And Mother, who pursed her lips and said that she pitied them. And even Franklin, who in his slow way endeavored to treat unequivocally with any matter he saw as touching on honor. None of them would have thought for a second of helping a slave to escape any more than they would have thought of loosing the neighbors' goats. But evidently the British would. Right. <laughs> yeah, it was very disruptive. Um, and it's, you know, for Henry, it's sort of a shock to see uh, slaves he, who he knew uh, all of a sudden wearing British jackets and um, carrying guns, which would have been unheard of for a black person to be carrying a gun around. And um, so it was... Uh, it was that was another fascinating part of of that history to me, and um, you know I came into it because I felt like uh, this story is all set in the Chesapeake Bay area, um, and I felt like slavery was such an entangled part of America at that time. It had to be an aspect of the story, um, so it was it is fascinating to me to see the, these slaves joining the British, and it you know as a writer it's interesting because it forces you to think about you know. Who's the good guy and who's the bad guy in this situation? You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm speaking with Denver author Nick Arvin. His new book, Mad Boy, tells the story of 10-year-old Henry Phipps, who's on a quest to fulfill his mother's final wish during the War of 1812. Another interesting element of this story is that Henry keeps running into the same characters at different times throughout this book. Are are all these interactions uh, plausible? I think it's... um... It's more plausible at that time than than you might suppose. One thing to keep in mind is 
uh, there are just many fewer people around. Um, the population of Washington uh, at that time was around 10,000 people. Um, so that's, you know, the size of a Colorado city like Craig, you know. Yeah. Um, so you're much more likely just to run into people on the street there. Um, and then, you know, a lot of the action is centered between Washington and Baltimore. There's only one road between the two. So if anybody else was along there, and it's not like you're in a car, you're not going to go buzzing by him without seeing him. Yeah, no interstates, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but just a fewer roads, like you said. So like one common path, north and south, east right. and west type of thing. And it's also, um, you know, this is a, it's a 19th century adventure novel. And uh, the the coincidences uh, occur in those kinds of novels all the time. So it's part of the genre. You know, uh, Huckleberry Finn, for example, um, has some outrageous coincidences. Yeah. I want you to read a passage that describes looting on the battlefield um, that, that is quite intense and, and that, that Henry uh, finds himself in the situation. I believe it's page 65 of the book. Sure. This is at the Battle of Bladensburg, which um, occurred as the British were marching on Washington and the Americans were attempting to stop them. And so Henry Henry's watching the battle. Henry lurches to one direction and another, trying to see. The sloping meadow directly before him has begun to empty as the Americans retreat, the redcoats chasing. But bullets still fly nearby with short, sharp noises of keening and thwacking. When the scurvied man springs up and with prancing steps and startling recklessness, shouting, Lord, 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 runs into the meadow. He falls on the nearest body, an American, tears open the blue jacket, and begins to rummage. Henry's surprised to discover how many civilians are peering from behind trees and through the bushes, rough-looking men and narrow-eyed women, frozen, leaning to watch the scurvied man work amid the flying bullets. The scurried man lifts up a chain that gleams gold. He puts it in his teeth, grins, cackles, and whoops. The others rush forward, Henry with them. Now, this wasn't just looting of the bodies of the fallen, but also homes and businesses were looted. Often a lot of what we read about from this era is the stories of the wealthy, but life wasn't like that for most people in America at the time, was it? Right. A lot of people, you know, they they weren't very far from Baltimore or D.C., but... uh, you didn't have to go very far to be in the frontier yeah. and uh, living in relative isolation, uh, subsistence farming. And uh, it was, uh, you know, a, a day-to-day uh, um, grind just to, to survive. Um, and you could be wiped out by, um, you know, diseases, by um, a war. I mean, if your and, crops fail, that's it. Right. right? Your, <laughs> your crops fail, that's it. Your horse dies suddenly. That's, you know, you so uh, – or – um, you know, a cow falls on your mom and your dad's in debtor's prison. Right, right. Could this story have been written, let's say, with a teenager or with a young a young man? Yeah, I, I mean, it would just be different. Um, I, I As think, adventurous, do you think, in terms of, it seems like it's almost like this child playfulness a little bit sometimes. In the right. Book. That's part of what I love about Henry is um, he's got a little bit of, despite everything that's going on around him, this this terrible conflagration he's in the middle of, he's got uh, a, a child's sense of wonder. And um, even in the middle of all that, he, he has these moments where, um, you know, he's able to just uh, enjoy the newts in the pond or the rainbow. Um, and uh, so he brings that to it in a little, little bit of innocence. Um, you know, he's very big hearted in a way 
um, that someone older, I think, starts to close themselves off a little bit. The title of the book is Mad Boy, and indeed there are aspects to Henry that do seem quite mad. How do you want readers to understand the meaning of that word mad? Do you want it to be insane or, or angry? Um, there's – at one point in the book, um, he's actually called the mad boy by other people because he um, – What are you dragged... doing? You're taking your mother. <laughs> exactly. Right. He's um, he, he, he's put his mother into a pickle barrel and he's dragging her around because he can hear her better when she's close to him. So he's um, – you know, he's, he's a 10-year-old who's in shock and is uh, – um, reacting very strangely to that um and mad in that sense but he's also the the title it was actually a reminder to me when i was working on the book that he's a boy who reacts viscerally to things because i'm a i'm a writer i'm a bit of an introvert i like to sit back and think about things and my first instinct when writing a character is often to do that as well for the character to kind of observe and see what happens and um so as i was writing this that title was a reminder that no 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 this is a boy who's going to do something Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Denver author Nick Arvin's new book is Mad Boy, an account of Henry Phipps in the War of 1812. Finally today, alleyways can be, well, they can be pretty ugly places. So Denver got five artists to add their touch. Between 14th and 15th streets, you can find hundreds of cats. Not real, but artist Kelly Monaco thinks they can have a real effect on passersby. So what we're looking at is around 300 cats that are integrated within the environment and the architecture. They're playing with each other. They're playing with the landscape, and they're also watching people. First, I really wanted to activate the space with something that we think of when we think of alleys, but we never really see in in Denver, especially in an urban environment. You don't necessarily always see cats. But there's this thing about animals in general and pets and how they are good for you and they increase your mood, they decrease your blood pressure, they make you um, happier people. And as for people's reactions... Oh my gosh, wow! I love it! Yeah, you kind of have to look closely to start seeing them all. So cool, thank you. Yeah, sure. A short walk away, artist Joel Swanson is creating an installation called Yours. I took the uh, pronoun yours and created a large neon sign that kind of hangs like a canopy over an alleyway. And then every two seconds, the Y blinks on and off, so it's alternating between yours and ours. So the idea behind it is to kind of have people think about the alley space and who owns it. And if you think about kind of all the conflicts in the world today, they can all be boiled down into the sense of what is yours and what is ours. So even though it's a really kind of simple concept, just a blinking sign, I think there's a real complexity to how these words kind of operate within our world. Beth Gruich co-owns three restaurants near these alleys, and she has high hopes for their transformation. The cleaner the alleys, the better. Um, The more things that are going on, the less riffraff, um, the more apt we are to keep our neighborhoods clean, more apt we are to feel safe, a safe environment. You know, we have a parking garage right behind us that our guests use, and for them to be able to walk through this alley, they need to feel safe and they need to feel the energy, and to have things like this makes me just smile and laugh. The project's paid for by the Downtown Denver Partnership with the help of a grant. Now, they won't say how much it costs, but the partnership's Tammy Dorr says... The program was expensive in dollars, 
but nowhere near the exponential value we'll get out of it in overall impact. When we do projects like this, it inspires others to take action. So you see five alleys now. What we know is that it will cause other private property owners and other businesses and other nonprofits to think about what they can do to build upon this installation and really further the concept of bringing art to communities to create inclusive and vibrant environments. The alleyway installations will be up for a year all around Denver's 16th Street Mall. You can see photos at CPR.org. And that's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks to our uh, director, Michelle P. Fulcher, Shane Rumsey, our audio engineer, our executive editor is Ryan Warner. Our theme was written and performed by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. Follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters and, of course, connect with us on Facebook, CPR News. And always, if you want, email us. Click connect at the top of CPRnews.org or comment at the bottom of articles on our website. Have a great weekend. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day.